You're listening to the Even Odds Podcast on the Constructed Criticism Network. Here are your hosts, Mason and Trey, and thank you for rolling with us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 21st episode of the Even Odds Podcast. I am your legal-to-drink host, Mason, and I'm joined by Waffle House lover, Trey. Hey, everybody. You like that Waffle House? We just had some. We're doing an early morning podcast. Yeah, we normally don't do this, but I was happy to get those uh, scrambled eggs and country ham in me. What a delicious treat. What an experience, some might say. (laughs) But you know what else is an experience? Getting to listen to this podcast, and we have an exciting one for today. We're talking about picking up and learning a new deck this week. It's a very exciting thing that a lot of people do all the time, and you know, it's not really talked about a lot, right? Like a lot of times people talk about like the deck selection process and things like that, but never like what you're supposed to do. So we're gonna go over all of that today. I think it's gonna be pretty fun. But first, we've got a pretty exciting thing from our sponsor. Yeah, um, we've got a new sponsor this week. Uh, just kidding. It's Wayfinder Travel Agency back again with this fall's must-see experience. Do you love the things that go bump in the night? Do you seek out the spine-tingling, creeping chill? Then you'll love the newest offering from Wayfinder Travel Agency. It's the Hop-On Orzov Haunted Bus Tour. You can stroll through the wrath-warped walls of the Church of Deals, or you can stand aghast at the feet of the Ghost Council. Explore the horrors at your leisure with the Hop-On Orzov Haunted Bus Tour. Uh, no, the Ghost Council might not be the Ghost Council you know. The Ghost Council is dead. There are multiple ghost councils. There are, oh, the, oh, like the ghost council for like the Tri-City area? Yeah, well, also even as, as cards, there are two ghost councils. There was Obzidat the ghost council, and then there's Orzova the ghost council. Yeah, Kai killed them all. That's how I know you don't listen to the lore. <laughs> but you know what? If you want to talk about lore, you can go to Patreon.com. That's the other sponsor for our show at Patreon.com. You can sign up for the Even Odds Pod. we got a lot of really exciting stuff to get, go and look and see. Um there's, you know, a lot of different perks. One of the perks of the Patreon column, we didn't actually get one. We're recording a little bit sooner than normal for us. So because of that and the kind of weird schedule, we don't have a Patreon only question. But we're just going to make one up real quick because I'm sure that people want to know. Waffle House, yay or nay? Don't want a long talk. Waffle House, yay or nay? Yay forever. It's in my heart. Nay, I'm off it. Let's move on to the main topic this <laughs> week, though. Just uh, briefly, Waffle House is real food, cooked to order, in front of you. What a delight. You, you sell, say all those things like it's a perk. <laughs> yeah, well, if every restaurant did that, then it wouldn't have to be a perk. But some restaurants like IHOP don't do that. Wow. <laughs> I don't even know why we're talking about IHOP. We're clearly just talking about Waffle House. You don't have to divide the world. You can build it up with love. You know what else you can build with love? Your deck choice. So, Trey, when we're talking about like fi- picking up a deck, learning a deck, and finding a deck, like what's one of the first things that you do? Well, so one of the things that I want to try to look at is, like, what are the most popular decks that are being played and what are the best performing decks so far in a format? So I can try to get an idea of what other people are doing at that point to see whether or not I want to pick one of the top decks or try to attack that metagame. So when you're, you're thinking about it really from, a like, a spike mentality, right? Like, that's what we're trying. We're trying to frame Always. that there. Sure. I would say that you can frame all this stuff and everything we're talking about from whatever your goal is in Magic. So I think, like, if you're wanting to just pick up, you know... The Enchantress deck and Legacy, right? Or just whatever. You can apply all these things, but we are going to talk about it from a spike perspective. Um, 
So when you're talking about picking a deck from the metagame, do you normally, like, do you lean towards, like, the best deck? Do you look towards decks that, like, attack the best deck? Does it depend on, like, what the top deck is? How do you go through that whole process? Yeah, I think it depends. If all of the top decks are doing, like, a relatively similar kind of thing, then I might try to look to attack the metagame if it seems like it's something that I'm going to be able to attack on a, like, fairly linear basis, right? Like, uh, you know, it happened when we were playing the approach deck, right? Like, a lot of the top decks were... Creature-based decks, they were all trying to win in combat, so playing Approach of the Second Sun was something that they didn't interact with very favorably, and it was easy to to try to attack the game in that way. But, you know, if there's kind of a diverse type of thing that's happening with the metagame, then I'll generally try to look at which of the top decks I think is going to perform the best, and that I think will fit with what it is that I like doing. Yeah, that's definitely something that, like, I also try to do, is, like, if there's the top deck that I, I kind of like playing or enjoy playing, I'll definitely gravitate towards that one first. But I'll also try and look and see what's available in the pool. And this is something that happens a lot because of Arena, right? Like, you have so many deck options you can change up all the time. Then, you know, deck selection can kind of change up there. But, you know, we're talking more about trying to pick up and really learn and master decks. So that happens there. You know, this is happening right now for us for the SCG in Cincinnati, right? Like, you're having to learn and pick up a deck for a standard right now, which you haven't played in, like, two months. Right, yeah, absolutely. I've been putting a lot of work in on that right now, of trying mm-hmm. to, like, make the selection, and I think I have narrowed in onto the deck that I'm going to play, and so now I've been putting the reps in of trying to learn that deck. Awesome. So, Trey, you, you've picked your deck. What do you do next? What's, like, your next step in the process? So the next thing I try to do is try to see what information is available out there from other sources, right? Like, are there people who have been playing this deck? Odds are, yes, like, unless it's some crazy brew. And so there's probably videos, articles, um, you know, podcasts talking about it. Like, where can I go and see what information is available to me about the deck, about the roles that people are taking with the deck, how it is that they're playing out, what their sideboarding strategies are, and, like, looking at what information is available to me before I dive into it um, that can kind of put me ahead of not having to do a lot of the groundwork myself. Okay, so, like, you're looking at it for, like, articles, podcasts, streams, that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Just, like, where can I get ahead so I'm not having to start at ground zero on a deck, especially a deck that's already established? When you're looking for articles for, like, established decks, like, let's just take, for example, we're talking about Mono Blue, since that seems to be the deck you're looking at for Cincy. Do you go and look up Autumn's Guide? Do you go and look up, like, a primer on how to play? Like, what is your, what's, like, what when you're seeking out information, where are you looking? Yeah, so I, I did a little of all of it. Yeah. Um, I eventually ended up settling on, I've been playing Autumn 75 from the uh, from the last Mythic Championship. Uh, Good branding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I try to stay, stay you know, with the lingo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the article that they wrote for Star City Games that was the tournament report following the Mythic Championship that had an outline of their sideboarding guide, but more important than their sideboarding guide, they did a good job of explaining what their reasoning and strategies were. Um, which is good because sometimes there you need to adapt like from what that sideboarding guide was. Yeah, and, and we're definitely going to get into that later in the episode too. Yeah, but that, sure. that article has been something that's been big, and then going back and watching the coverage of the games mm-hmm. uh, that uh, that they played with the deck has been something that's also been a big source of information. Yeah, well, I don't know if you noticed, but yesterday actually Autumn had another article. Because now, now they're a bi-weekly writer for SCG, I believe, so they're in the rotation. But they had the Mono Blue Mirror Guide, Correct. which is I you know like a pivotal thing. Not even if you agree with it, but just also one thing that I think is valuable from articles is learning how other players think about the matchup and the way they're approaching it. And that's something that you can use to inform your decision and your choices and how you're going to play the deck. Yeah, especially if you're looking at things that are that are like big sources of information, right? Like Star City Games, Channel Fireball, uh, you know, CC, um, mm-hmm. uh, Game Podcast, like any of these things that are like, like go-to places for the player base, right? 
like if you're if you're listening to the information that's coming from those sources, well, even if it's not something that you agree with completely or it's something you know that it's informing large amounts of the player base. And so odds are that you're encountering your opponents who are playing those same decks. You can assume that they have that information that's available from those sources. Yeah. Also, game like let's take a moment to talk about game podcasts affecting the metagame. It's huge at the level that we're talking about. You know, we're, we try to focus on like IQ, rest in peace, PBDQs, but like soon to be PTQ, or I guess MC, MCQs. MCQs, yeah. So like w- that level specifically, a lot of the times what happens is people don't have a lot of time to playtest, so they're not dedicated super hard to playtesting yet. And what happens is they got, and I think rightfully so, and I think it's a good thing to do, I'm not bashing on anyone, but you listen to what other pros who are putting the time in do, right? It's like, I don't have the time to put this work in, I'm going to get two or three hours, you know, maybe this week to play because of work and whatnot. I'm going to listen to what Jerry and Brian are saying because, you know, blah, 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 whatever, like whatever reasons you have. And I think that's good reasoning. But you can learn a lot on what people are going to do because of what game says. And, and that goes for all podcasts in general, especially if there's like a podcast you know your friends listen to, like even Odds Pod, you know, you should share it with them. Why aren't they listening? Uh, <laughs> you know, like if, if there's something where like, and they're saying something, you know, that can inform people because the information out there informs decisions, right? If you listen to the game podcast at the beginning, right, of the Arclight Evolution or whatever, they were a big champion for Four Thought Scour. And while I think Four Thought Scour was kind of the obvious thing that took a little bit of time to get to, there was some debate on whether you want the raw, like, cards and yard versus selection. But, like, they informed the metagame when they did that. Now, maybe the metagame would have got there on its own. Maybe it got there a little slower. Cards and Yard sounds like a weird graveyard-based Dr. Seuss book that I want to read. Yeah, well, that might be an ad. Maybe I just, oh, did I just, like, go for the ad next week? <laughs> Yikes. Uh, yeah, so the podcast and just things like that inform it a lot. And then streams and streamers, I think, is a, a thing that has been around in Magic, but now there are so many more uh, people who are out there and so many also just... There are a lot of really good players that stream before, but with the MPL, this the quality of player obviously is much higher at the top streams, right? Like BBD, uh, Brad Nelson, uh, Canister. I guess Canister streamed before, but Martin Musa, right? Like these are just players who didn't stream before for the most part, really. And now you have access to their thoughts, and even if you disagree with their thoughts or whatever, getting access to that information when you're trying to learn a deck is vital and pivotal. Right, and, and again, like, looking at what the reach those people have is. Yeah. Right? Like, you know, uh, Ali Antarazi's stream is very popular. You know, mm-hmm. have, uh, you know, 800 viewers, 1,000 viewers, or something like that. And there may be some wild decks and things that are going on there. But, like, the more reach or the more impact that those things have, the more that that can then influence the metagame overall, where it may not even always be the best source of information, right? Like, there may be a sideboarding guide and an ar- a sideboarding guide and an article, and then there may be a sideboarding guide in, like, Spike's Reddit or something like that. And one of them might have better information than the other, but the one that has more reach, more, uh, you know, almost. clout, right, exactly, it's going to reach a larger portion of the metagame, and then you can use that to inform your decisions when you're playing against your opponents. Yeah, I think a good example of this is Disguised Toast, right? If Disguised Toast were dog stream a deck on the first day of Hearthstone, You'll see it all over ladder because they're like just two of the biggest streamers. Like this guy shows a lot of meme decks. Dog is like very good at finding like the day one deck that's very popular and powerful. And you'll just see that all over ladder. And I think to a lesser extent than that, that's what game podcasting them do. So that was a weird mini side thing about how like uh, media can influence deck selection and things like that. But it's also important to know that kind of stuff when thinking about a deck and listening to a deck too. Because you can pick up a lot of information and know where people are going to be because of that. Right. And I, I think it, we kind of 
went this way. It wasn't a plane, the, the, a direction that we were thinking about yeah. going. But like another piece of information that you're getting when looking at these other sources of information that you might not initially think about of just like how those things are influencing other people's decisions, even if you're not, you know, in agreement of everything that you're seeing all the time that you're seeing it. Yeah, uh, like uh, to like, go along that for one last example here, like we started, uh, well, I guess uh, Spencer and Kling started playing the build deck and I started playing the build deck because they were saying it's pretty good. I remember Jerry talking about on the podcast that like he thinks those gruel cards are pretty good right now. And a lot of people are talking about Cruel Harpooner. And they showed me their deck list. And it's like, right after Autumn 1, it's like four Cruel Harpooners main decks and Spellbreaker. I'm like, well, I've heard from a lot of people, Gruel, uh, Spellbreaker's pretty good. I know Harpooner's good against uh, Mono Blue. I'm going to play this deck. And I, like, walked out of Diamond. I lost three matches, two of them in Nexus. Like, very easy. So, you can inform a lot from that position. And I, I just, we didn't hit the streams as kind of hard as I wanted to. So, I want to double back there for one last second. You can learn a lot from streams from what we said about all that stuff, but also just actually watching someone play and talk about their thought process and reasoning is so valuable. Because on an article or a podcast, we try to give you snippets of information that are the most raw, efficient, right? And there's a lot of times where we want to go deeper on something, and that's like what the Gates episode tried to do to an extent, was give you deeper snippets of information that matters about the Gates deck. Because you can't really, it's hard to do that on a podcast or an article, and not be, like, too monotonous. But when you're watching a live stream, that's kind of, like, their job at times, right? Especially if their brand is, like, being, like, a like an Owen Turner wall or something like that. Like, my brand is, I play really good magic. So, and they're not, like, trying to be, they're not trying to be, like, over-the-top entertaining like a disguised toast would be in Hearthstone. You Just watching those games and learning from them, it's the same as, it's almost like playtesting with your friends and being the person that's watching. Well, and it gives you the opportunity to see a thing that you don't get to watch when you're just watching coverage. Right, like if you're watching, you know, coverage of a GP RIP, and uh, uh, you know, coverage of a the MCQ or something. They do like coverage that. of GPs. Yeah, uh, sometimes. Okay. Uh, you know, they like have a dartboard of the GPs. They throw some darts at them and pick. We're going to cover these sometimes. I like the low balls, the low hanging fruit, <laughs> uh-huh. the easiest to hit. <laughs> but you might be watching a play. You know, somebody play, and you you know you know the contents of their hand. You know the game situation, and then they make a play, and you're like, why on earth would they do that? Like you would have done something completely different, and you don't have any concept as to why they made the decision that they made. Yeah. And the commentators do a good job of trying to give explanations, but sometimes they're caught off guard yeah. by like what the decision was or why the play was made or anything else like that. But on streams, you you most of the time don't run into that because the person walks through what they're thinking about, what options they were considering, and then why they made the decision that they made. And even if you still disagree with the play or think that they should have made a different play, you get at least valuable things of like what the thought process is, what led them to that conclusion. Yeah, 100%. Uh, that is very true. Speaking of coverage and things like that, one thing that I think is pretty helpful, and I've talked about on the podcast before, is finding videos like the CFB videos and whatnot. Where you have like the, it's almost like watching like just a pre-recorded stream essentially, right? And what you what you do is you like mute it, pause when the turn comes to them, think about the play, think about what you would do up until the point that you can, right? Like if you're playing against a counter spell deck, you have to pause multiple times. But a lot of times you can like make a play out in your head, then unmute, unpause, listen, like see what they did, understand why they did it. And then you get to the next point, it's like all right, pause, think about it, and that that's you almost playing the game with the pro, right? And then you're able to, like, since they explain their thought process, most of the time with the lines, even remotely, like, a decision point, you get to learn from them in that way. Yeah, and I can tell you that when you start doing that and then they start doing the thing that you thought, feels good, man. Yeah. It feels real good. <laughs> yeah, it feels good. And also, it's, like, just, like, a, it's a good moment. Instead of being, like, a 
we talk about being an active participant in your games, right? And like making sure you're focused and making decisions and making plays in game and making sure that you are participating, right? You're not just there, but you're part of it. Uh, doing this, the videos is the same thing with practicing, but with a video, it's very easy to like eyes glaze over. You lose judgment for a second. You text your friend, do you know, respond to a message. It's very easy to lose your attention. You make a sandwich. You play Smash. You yeah. do other things. And it's like, no, I'm watching it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got it on the background. I'm listening, right? It's, you know, two hours long. i got plenty of time. So that is one thing that I think is also, like, you can accumulate knowledge in a lot of ways right now with magic. We're in, like, the golden age of magic information, for sure. And, excuse me, sorry about that. You really can do whatever you want when it comes to learning whichever way you think is best for you whether that's reading listening or watching um and you can attack all those things in multiple different ways and it's very helpful so what do you do after that what's the next step after you have watched the videos you've read the articles you've listened to the even odds podcast like what do you do next okay it's time to go jam some games are you just slamming as many games as you can or how do you approach learning a deck so it kind of depends on the deck so i've been learning war prison this last week uh, my friend Hess wants to play Amulet Titan at IQ because he might want to play at the Pro Tour, and I need a deck to play for the IQ. So it's like, oh, I'll play War Prison. I've heard it's pretty good. Heard it was a top five deck on the Even Odds podcast last week. Uh, and then I've heard a lot of. It's funny because we like recorded that on Saturday, and then Monday on social media, I was like, hey, War's everywhere. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, jokes aside, yeah. So I've been like learning that deck. So I did the first thing, right? Like I picked my deck, and then I like. I watched a lot of streams and listened to a lot of videos, like two and a half hour long deck primers. Dude, I can't believe that Jody Keith video was two and a half hours with no gameplay. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I kept clicking through it being like, okay, I'm going to watch some of the games. No games. Yeah. <laughs> Just talking through loops. Just talk, well, talking through loops and reasoning and like answering questions from chat. It was thorough and in-depth. Yeah. Yeah. So I like I did that. I watched Susser MTG, which if you're interested in war is S U S S E R underscore MTG. He is the quote unquote war god, as told to me. Uh, he's the guy that has the second most trophies on MTGO and has been championing the war deck for a while now and making all the big innovations. So watched his vod, watched his stream, asked some questions in chat. So I did all that, and then it like I didn't get the deck together until yesterday. And so as soon as I got the deck together, I I did want to jam games. So I don't think that's the most efficient way. The deck is just so technically weird. I wanted to get my hands on it and kind of see like how it felt and everything. But I think normally the better way to do that is to go in with a process of trying to figure out what I want to learn from this session, right? Assuming you don't have to do this in like an accelerated time chamber, like a hyperbolic time chamber, some might say. You probably don't get that reference. That's an anime reference. Mm -hmm. If you like that reference, leave a review on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, so I'm assuming that anime is like most other shows where they just add things to make it sound more science-y, like hyperbolic or quantum or anything else like that. Am I, I might be using the wrong, maybe hyper something, but it was basically like time moved at like an yeah. extremely slow rate yeah, that, so they could train more. Yeah, hyperbolic would generally be exaggerating something for the uh, purposes of effect in a grammatical sense. It's things so that, that would work for the hyperbolic time chamber because yeah. they're exaggerating time okay yeah. yeah goku went in there you can only go in twice though so you gotta use your time wisely there try that's your dragon ball z minute okay <laughs> I, 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 I didn't know where you're gonna go with that so yeah so if you're not doing the hyperbolic time chamber version i think it is you know jokes aside it's important to like have a purpose of what you're trying to learn right like when i was practicing the green white deck to help Teresa out for the team event next week it was like okay like does this deck like can it fight the soul tie deck can it like 
beat Chain Whirler decks. Like, I had, like, things that I wanted to learn. Like, okay, how do we beat Nexus decks? And just things like that, trying to learn those things. Well, yeah, and so I think it's important, you know, I think what you're saying is right. Like, you need to have a purpose for the session of whatever it is that you're doing. And that may be matchup specific, right? Yeah. You may be wanting to play a specific matchup, like you said, with Sultai or something like that. It may be running through a gauntlet, mm-hmm. um, where you've got the top five decks that are there, and you want to run through all of them, you know, over like an hour and a half session and see how the deck does. And, uh, you know, the, those types of things might be important, but sometimes it's different than that. Like what you're doing with were mm-hmm. like, you've been watching the things online and everything else, but that's a deck that has a lot of me- like mechanical. And what I mean by that is like actual manipulating of a lot of different cards. Mm-hmm. And that, so sometimes you need to be playing the deck, like just to get the mechanics of doing this stuff. Like I've been playing uh, dredge for modern. And, like, playing Dredge online is not the same as playing Dredge in person. Like, you have to figure out, like, mechanical aspects of the game of playing a deck like that. Where do you put your cards? Where do you put your graveyard? How do you organize your things? Like, and... Well, not not only that, too, but also maintaining them. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, like, sometimes you need to get through, like, practicing for a playtesting session of, like, the mechanics of a deck. Um... And, and so, like, having those those purposes and things there are important. And sometimes it might be testing a specific card. I know we talked about this during the um, the Gates episode and other things. Like, it's like, okay, we were trying to see whether or not a particular card is good. Like, do playtesting sessions where you are, like, starting the game with that card in your hand just so you can get games to see whether or not that's a card that's going to be better over another card. Yeah, for sure. Like, especially if you're testing in real life over Arena or something like that, which I think is also a great tool for testing. You know, um... I'll go back to that in one second. But yeah, putting the card in your opening hand is very valuable, right? Like, your time is a resource, and like, sure, Cruel Harpooner is in your deck, right? Whatever. But I want to know how it actually plays. Like, can I afford it half out two mana against blue? Do I want to play it as a 3-2? Do I want to play it as a Flame Tongue Kavu? How do I want to play this card? And putting it in your hand will make it harder for your opponent's game or whatever, but also they need to learn to battle through that kind of stuff if it's going to happen anyway. So I think it's helpful from both sides. Yeah, spoiler alert, that card's good on every turn whenever you play it against Mono Blue. <laughs> yeah, it's quite powerful. As long as it, does, as long as it resolves. But yeah, so but going back to Arena, um, yeah, Arena is another great way to test for standard and limited too. Like, you know, if it's good enough for Ben Stark, it's good enough for me. Is literally what I say to everyone who asks me about a, a Arena Limited. It's like, if Ben Stark will play it all day to practice, I, I can do it. So, <laughs> um, but for Arena, you can jam a lot of games and play against a lot of different decks. And it's easy to kind of get in like this tunnel or hole where like hours fly by and you're not like really learning so it's important to stop be reflective i know some people keep a google doc where they write down things they learned they message their friends right like just making sure you're keeping on top of it you're not just playing for the sake of playing because it's easy to fall in that kind of hold with the addictive nature of ladder but if you use that tool wisely it's kind of like hyper mtgo right you just get to like turbo go through games they're much quicker availability to cards if you have a full collection, is you know once you have a collection of basically everything, it's quite it's a lot easier, it's a lot cheaper. And then once you go through and you're doing all these different things, you're playing all these different games, and you're switching cards up every other game, you're switching things on the fly. You can learn a whole lot about decks because you're playing so much Magic. Yeah, another part of it is too. Don't sleep on the direct challenge in Arena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like if you have a playtesting buddy, you have somebody that you you know regularly do those kinds of things with you know, better than just going through the ladder, right? Which has its own kind of skewed metagame in a sense because it's there for a specific purpose, right? Um, But you can be like, all right, these are the decks that I think I'm going to see at the tournament that I'm going to or that I'm preparing for or whatever. Let's load those into a gauntlet, basically, and let's just direct challenge one right after another and work our way through, like, learning these types of things. 
One aspect that we haven't talked about in this playtesting is another purpose you can have is identifying like what your role is in a given matchup. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that's particularly important with the Mono Blue Tempo deck in Standard, is that the deck doesn't play out the same way every time depending on what deck you're playing against. And you have to play like fairly drastically different depending on what the matchup is. And you would make plays that like would be nonsensical in certain matchups that you would be like, you'll just lose the game if you don't do, you know, against these decks. Like, for example, like we, we played a lot of like the green-white tokens deck versus the mono-blue deck, mm-hmm. right? And like normally, if I had like a Tempest Dijin in a matchup against like Sultai or something else, like I would wait to have some kind of protection before just slamming it. But like you're going to go so wide so fast, and you also have limited ways to interact with what the flyers are that are there. And limited removal, you know, basically just Conclave Tribunals. Like, I just need to be slamming as many creatures as possible that fly as fast as possible so that I can race you before you can kill me. Because, like, the longer the game goes, the wider you go, and I can't interact effectively with that strategy. And so, like, it took a few games to identify that, like, that's the role I need to be in, is, like, put as much power in the air as quickly as possible so that I can come across before you can, like, flourish me to kill me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, like... That, that's a moment of, like, learning something and, like, trying to figure out what your role is and also adapting your role in the matchup and being fluid with it, right? Yes, and then, and then see, then that would be different, too, of, like, you know, if I'm playing against, like, the Nexus decks, then I'm just going to, like, put a thing on there. Like, it's basically a Delver deck where I'm going to put a thing down with a Curiosity on it. And, uh... What's a Curiosity? Curious Obsession, oh, whatever, okay. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, old, old people cards. Mm, worse ones. And, um... And then I'm just going to protect it. Like, I'm just going to have counter spells, and I'm just going to sit on it, because the clock doesn't matter. I just need to be sure that they can't do stuff, right? Like, interacting with them is more important than racing them. And so, it's just a different role in the matchup, and being able to, like, identify what's important. And, like, if I were to tap out for a Tempest Gen in that matchup, like, I'm, I'm essentially just going to lose, like, if I do that ever. And so, getting to those, like, matchup-specific things, and what your purpose is, and how you should be playing those games out in order to maximize your value is something that's also useful when playing the games out, as opposed to just playing games, and I think a lot of people get stuck in, did I win or did I lose? And that's the only thing that they're looking at. But, like, identifying, like, how should I be structuring the games to give me the best chance to win? 100%, I love that. Let's move on to the last bit here, which is one of the most important bits, and that's sideboarding. So this kind of goes in with the deck selection part at the beginning when you're picking your deck. But when you're thinking about your deck, I want to talk about it here. You need to think about what your sideboard, like what is available in your colors. Uh, This is more of a standard problem. As you get in the older formats, uh, you can normally find an answer to your problems out there. There are just so many cards. But in standard, you need to know like, all right, if let's say artifacts is a big problem, maybe playing a deck that is weak to artifacts and can't have a lot of sideboard cards for artifacts might be a bad place to be. Just this is a little note to take to be aware of, but when it comes about figuring out a sideboard, one of the things I think is important is figuring out what uh, I'm sorry, figuring out how to board and like what comes in, what comes out. Because sideboarding is one of the hardest parts of magic for sure. Yeah, and it's the thing that we like constantly see people asking about, right? Mm-hmm. Like everybody wants a sideboard guide, sideboard guide, sideboard guide. Like yeah. if you ever see a deck list, somebody's like, "Dope, do you have a sideboard guide?" Like it's the immediate question because everyone immediately recognizes how hard it is. Um, you know, and the response that you get a lot of the times from like, uh, pros or other people, they'll be like, take the bad cards out, put the good cards in and they don't have a sideboard guide. And they say that, but a lot of it is really, a lot of them don't have sideboard guides. Mm-hmm. Like they do it intuitively based on what happened or what cards they saw in the matchup. And well, they, like, a lot of times they also built the deck so they kind of just internalized it. Exactly. And they might not have one that's formally there. Yeah, and they don't want to do more work if they're not going to get paid. Yeah, (laughs) that's certainly true. So, yeah, so that's one thing. But also one thing I think is important is, um, 
And I kind of learned this from CC, but it would be like, people would ask me if like a cyborg guy was my deck, and I'd be like, I, you give me a guide, and I'll give you a guide. So that way, you've put time into it. And it's talking about being like an active participant again, not only in like your learning the deck, but also learning how to play the main deck, but learning how to cyborg and do that stuff is very important. So like, let's give an example. Let's say that in War Prison, right? I wanted uh, to bring in Gearport Aethergrid against Dredge, right? And let's say you're the War Prison Master. And I send you my sideboard guide. In my sideboard guide, I have Gearport Aethergrid. I say it's a win condition that can shoot down some of the little flyers that can be annoying. You might respond with, well, that's true. But it does stop those little things that give chip damage, which can be an incidental problem. You're better off having more efficient cards the quicker get the lock going up. And so while that card's fine and passable, I don't think it's the end of the world that if you did that, I think it's probably better to do it like this. And then now you've learned because you put thought and time into it, right? Where if you just have a thing presented to you, you're not thinking about it. Well, and this touches on a key thing that happens with sideboard guides, right? Is that, and, and what Mason's talking about is an easy way to try to avoid that. It's all about having a plan, right? And it's kind of a central theme from the whole thing that we've been talking about, whether it's playtesting, deck building, deck selection, or sideboarding, is having a plan. And if you have a sideboard guide and you see what cards they took out and you see what cards they brought in, but you don't know why they did that, or you don't know what the plan with those cards are. Yeah, or what their goals are. Exactly. Then you may misplay those cards during the game and it's not useful, right? And that even if you would have sideboarded the game differently than what the sideboard guide says, but you had a plan as to how those cards are going to be implemented, you might end up having a better result than if you would have done what they did. Right, because having a plan is more important than just doing whatever someone else thought was optimal. Or just or just doing things, right? Like norm generally speaking, a plan beats like make random action every time. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a reason that we have generals for our army and not just here's a bunch of guns, go get them, we need another man in the field, you know? We need someone behind, so but we have generals for that reason. Plans yeah. are important. Yeah. Um <laughs> off with that off air. Uh so <laughs> that's an important thing for sure. And then I think adapting um, with your sideboarding guy as well. So, like, let's say that you know Susser, right? You're able to talk to Susser MTG, the war god, right? I don't, but, like, you, let's say you could talk to him, and then he gives you a sideboard guide, and then he gave it to you two weeks ago. And now you're on MTG Twitter, the toxic pit it is, and everyone's like, Shatterstorm and ban Faithless Looting. You're like, whoa, what was that first thing you said? Shatterstorm? It's like, <laughs> hang on, can we go back a second? Everyone's playing Shatterstorm. What do I do? And you look at your sideboarding guy and you're like, oh god, I can't beat Shatterstorm. It's like, well, you can put Darksteel Forge in your deck. You can put Jester's Cap in your deck. You can make innovations and make changes to your deck. Yeah, absolutely. Is that, you know, that's the point about adapting, right? Like the sideboard guides that you might be looking at and the things that you might be looking at might be before people adapted to what the deck was, right? Mm -hmm. Like the deck might not have been as popular. It might not have been worth dedicating sideboard slots to. But now, if War Prison and everyone's saying War Prison's a top five deck and that's a thing that you should be playing, it's like, okay, people are going to bring hate for it. Yeah. And so then you have to adapt, right? For sure. And so it's just a matter of that you have to constantly be thinking about what the next steps are and not just relying on whatever the, the last week's deck tech was. For sure. And now, like, this last part here kind of goes with that, or the second last part, I should say, kind of goes with that in a way, but it's learning how your opponent's sideboard for you. So I think this is a pivotal part of the deck that doesn't get brought up enough. And it's something that um, I've been trying to do more recently when I write out my sideboard, like, guides and notes, basically, is a lot of times you can put a, a T. So I put, like, an N for in, an O for out, and then a T for them. And I'll put down cards that their colors and generally play. For example, like, 
when Death Shadow was playing a bunch of braids, I wrote a braid down on my spirit sideboard guy because they're probably think, eh, I can kill a lord and I might snag an Aether Vial. So if my hand seems close, right, and I'm on the draw, and it's a one-land Aether Vial hand, I might want to mulligan in it because I might just get a braided and lose the game as an example of that, right? But then you can take this to the next level. Let's use Autumn's MC Finals, right? Autumn brings in all their Essence Capture against Esper in that Finals. Because Autumn, we talked about how they did a dance where they're like, well... I need to be able to beat their creatures, but these essence capsules are so bad if they don't bring in their creatures. But if they don't bring in their creatures, I feel better in the matchup. So I'd rather have this dead card, right? And know that like, if they bring in the thing that I think is optimal, I'm ready. And if they don't bring in the thing that's optimal, I have this, uh, a dead card, but I think the matchup is so much better with for me anyways, and that happened. Yeah, and that's a great example of, like, next-level sideboarding, right? Like, the general philosophy for Esper Control and just Control Decks and Standard forever is you don't have any creatures, so everyone sides out all of their creature stuff, and then you bring in a bunch of creatures in the, in the second and third games, and you catch them off guard. And so Autumn, knowing that, left in Essence Captures being like, if they bring in these creatures, then we can't beat them because their creatures are very good, they fly, they have value, they're repeatable value, and they're very difficult to deal with for this deck that doesn't really play any removal. So what do we do? Leave in leave in the Essence Captures and then... Bring catch, more in. Bring more in and then catch them off guard with it as a result because you're interacting with their plan in a way that they're not anticipating or expecting. 100%, yeah. And then I would say the last thing we're going to talk about here when it comes to sideboarding is open heart and open mind is what I wrote down. And what I mean by that is when you're trying to, you're first learning a deck especially, but as time goes on too and a metagame adapts, but specifically when you're first learning, people are going to have suggestions and you're going to see some crazy stuff, right? For example, if you look at the Darksteel, I'm sorry, the uh, War Prison deck that got the top eight of the last mocks, you're going to see Darksteel Forge, which is a nine mana artifact that gives all your artifacts indestructible. So many people have laughed at me for trying to get this card for this weekend. But Susser MTG was like, no, the only cards we're bad against are Shatterstorm, Creeping Corrosion, like those kind of cards where like they destroy everything. We just lose it all. And if those kind of cards are going up, I need to play this card. Another card that they play is Jester Cap. I mentioned this one earlier as well. It's a four mana artifact. Powerful. And you sacrifice it and pay two mana to search your opponent's deck and remove three cards from the game. It's like a weird surgical extraction type effect, like an extra bait effect. From Ice Age. From Ice Age, yeah. It's, it's also got some very cool art. Um, but those are weird cards, right? And especially if you're playing weirder decks, too. Like, Warrior Prison is a great example of weird cards, because all the cards in that deck are weird. But regardless, uh, you know, like, you look at those things, and you have to keep an open heart with them. And that doesn't mean you have to play with them, right? Like, I'm not playing with Jester's Cap today. But... I am keeping an open heart and open mind to these things, and then I can learn from them, and I can make my own decision. Because at the end of the day, it's on you to make your decision. You can ask your friends for help. You can look at Cyborg Guides. You can do this stuff. But you have to pull the trigger when you write down your deck list, and it's up to you at the end of the day, no one else. Right, and there's always different kinds of things you can look at. Like the Arclight Phoenix decks are, are that way right now with what their plan is going to be for Burn. Like, we've seen Dragon's Claw has been a common sideboard card. Mm -hmm. And then I've seen some decks here recently from, like, uh, uh, Dylan, Donigan. Uh, Dylan Donigan, who was, you know, splashing green in order to play Life Goes On. And then as a result of playing Life Goes On, now he's also playing Snapcaster. Because it's like, okay, that card gets better because Life Goes On is in the sideboard. Mm -hmm. And whether which one's better than the other, I don't know. But it's about having a plan. And, like, both of those decks are having a plan and then trying to execute that plan and taking chances to see whether or not these things are going to be good and, and what's the best way to try to approach it. Yeah, it's also, because you can reverse engineer this a little bit, maybe Dylan wanted more artifact hate 
And so he put eight, because Ancient Grudge is also in the deck. It's the other green card. He only has two green cards, as far as I know. Um, and so he puts Ancient Grudge in his deck to help beat the War Prison matchup. It's like, well, I could play Dragon's Claw to beat the red deck, or I can play this, like, one mana thing that gains me a lot of life. I can snap it. That's kind of hot, you know? If you, like, life goes on for gain eight after you bolt their creature, and then, like, they attack with a guy, trigger, you draw a land, flash in a snapcast, or target life goes on, block, trade, gain eight, that's, it's over. If you lose that game, you are destined to lose. There was nothing you could do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you gain 16 and can't beat a burn deck. Yeah, yeah. you 16 and trade with our Goblin Guide. You can't win? Go on. You got, you got other things to do with your day. <laughs> yeah, but that's a good example just yeah. of, like, there, it's not necessarily solved. And just because yeah. somebody else did it doesn't mean that it's solved. And you may play a weird card. Like, life goes on to a weird card. And not a card that would be on the radar for most people as a thing that you would consider or something that you would think about playing. But, like, it could be a good option. And it, it's very, like, limited and it's, like, a... a uh, it's targeted. Yeah, for sure. It's, like, this only does one thing against one matchup. But, like, sometimes you want really powerful cards that are that way. Yeah. Right? Like, sometimes you'll have, like, a, you know, a card that's just for one matchup, right? Like, if you're Dredge, you have, like, Vengeful Pharaoh for, like, uh, GDS. Like, that's all I want. You know, I play against that deck, I want this card, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sometimes that's fine. Yeah. And in Standard, I think this happens a little bit less because the cards are less powerful in general. But Cruel Harpooner, while it sometimes comes in against other decks like Esper, just have more threats and answer their Lyra's if they play it, uh, which is another moment of sideboarding their sideboard, right? But it's also just a thing where it's like, yeah, I just really want Cruel Harpooner for basically just Mono Blue. Like, I'm playing this green deck, I'm playing Green White, and I want four Cruel Harpooners because I need to, like, Flame Tongue copy their creatures. I need these big tempo plays. So Yeah, absolutely. And one last thing on the, like, Mono Blue versus Esper sideboarding thing that we talked about yeah, earlier. Like, that kind of train of thought. That kind of train of thought yeah. is that, let's say you lost game one, you sideboard like that for game two. Now game three, the Esper control, you've put them in a situation where they have to now make decisions. Do they sideboard their creatures out mm-hmm. to try to get you with dead cards in your deck now? Now they have a decision to make in the third game that they didn't have before because you sideboarded to their sideboard. 100%. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know. Tweet at us. Leave a review. If you're on the Patreon um, and you're joined, the, if you're at any level of the Patreon, you get access to Discord. Let us know. We'd love to talk about this more in depth. If you have questions, if you feel differently about something we'd love to have that conversation we're always down to have those things if you and so like the show and want to support you go to patreon.com slash even odds podcast and you can become a patron of one five or ten dollars and then you can leave a voicemail on the show and do lots of other very cool and exciting things coming up down the line you can also check out the rest of the constructive criticism network you can check out ccmtg vendor and constructive criticism the flagship show uh john stern seth manfield Spencer Hallen. They are crushing it over there, getting they're crushing it all the time, and just keep raising the bar on themselves. Uh, they just did an episode on Gruel. It was a lot of fun. That episode is very, like, friend, like, you know, getting in the rhythm, right? Like, they, they've been doing this now for a couple months, and it's starting to get, like, the the, the train's going. They're chugging along. So that's really great for them. Uh, Hive Mind is our MTG talk show. Um, I, oh, my gosh. I knew their name. I go totally for I like, I see their face, and I can't think of their name. There's a really cool guest coming on. Go to Twitter and follow MTG Hive Mind. Uh, they tweeted out just a little bit ago. Uh, if you want to learn more about Popper and you want to play some Popper, we played some last week after we finished recording the podcast. We had some Popper. sick, that was some weird games, some sick weird ones. Uh, you can check out Common Knowledge. They'll give you everything you need to know for Popper. And then finally, Homeward Path. It's more of a show for people who have a busy life like being a dad or working a lot or being a dad and working a lot or being a mom, a parent really, and working a lot. And it's really relatable content working through all of that. So if that's something that interests you, you should definitely check out that show as well, along with the rest of the shows in the Constructed Criticism Network.
Everyone, if you want to follow Trey, go to TreyMC at Twitter.com and let him know Waffle Houses. Meh. How dare you. If you want to follow me and talk about how Kesha once rhymed Sabertooth Tiger with Budweiser, tweet at Mason E. Clark. And if you want to tweet at the podcast and say, hey, this episode, I enjoyed it. <laughs> tweet at Even Odds Pod on Twitter. Then you can find everything about the show. We also do some little tweet stuff. We normally will tweet something out a little bit ahead of the show, try and get a feeler for what people are thinking, and you can maybe get a sneak peek of what we're going to talk about that week. So thank you everyone for roll with us, and roll with us next week. Uh, Mason's looking at me with a sense of panic in his face because he wants me to do a wow okay, and we don't have anything that's particularly planned for a wow okay. But did you see... That the Mythic Invitational that's going on, that they sent actual real invitations. And they were like black leather-bound invitations, and they sent them out to people for their special event. Wow! Okay, they actually did a thing to make a special thing seem special. And they were able to have the people that are coming and can participate in it have a thing that they could post out on social media to let everyone know that the special thing is special. As opposed to like the last two or three special tournaments that they did where the only thing that people were able to do to talk about the special thing was hate tweet about it. So this is a real nice step in the right direction and it came in a leather bound volume which everyone knows is classy. Wow. Okay. We'll roll with this next week.